days. Hashtag THC. That's hashtag THCD. You want more open mics? Fridays, 6 to 8. Happy hour with guest host and George D. Smith. Pew, pew, pew. Four open mics every week at Mutiny Radio, brother. After work and take a seat at Asiento, a great place to meet friends, have delicious tapas and drinks, and relax with your neighbors. Located at Bryant and 21st Street in the Deep Mission, Kitty Corner Block from Mutiny Radio. Come and get a drink during the comedy festival and enjoy happy hour pricing all night long with your festival ticket. A great neighborhood bar. Come take a seat at Asiento. The Roxy Theater is San Francisco's favorite nonprofit art house cinema, bringing you the best, coolest, weirdest, most thought provoking movies of the past, present, and future. Hands down, there is no better way to get your film fix than at this legendary historic theater. Visit www.roxy.com. That's www.roxie.com today for showtimes and tickets. Everybody should listen to Muni Radio at muniradio.fm. It's a great place to listen to crazy things. July. 
A hundred men were wounded and two were left to die. Oh, the FBI is worried and the bosses, they are scared. They can't deport six million men they know. And we're not gonna let them send Harry over the seas. We'll fight for Harry Bridges and we'll build the CIO. Morning, mutineers. This is the B. And we're playing. That was the Ballad of Harry Bridges with uh, Arlo Guthrie singing a song that's uh, associated with um, Pete Seeger a lot. We'll fight for Harry Bridges and build the CIO. This is Labor and Love. And we're coming at you today from Mutiny Radio. Mutiny Radio, 2781 21st Street. And this is where we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, Someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at at the table, that's the negotiating table where you work, you're probably on the menu. Never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor and when I say labor, I mean you. This is Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. Uh, Gordon and my son Abe over here. Whoop. Sorry about that. So what do we got for you this week? We got radio labor, as usual. We got the California Supreme Court coming down on the side of workers against the federal government. We got working class history, working class heroes that you may or may not know about. We got coverage of the Minneapolis General Strike of 1934 as well as the San Francisco General Strike of 1934. A company in New Zealand is going to make a four-day week permanent because they've tried it out. They've seen the future and it works. From more rats to the lords of the docks. The Long Journey of San Francisco Longshoremen, which culminated in, in the strike of 1934 with Ian Ruskin. What are things like at your job? Right? Is the union active? Have you been included? 
Do you feel represented? I don't know. Take this quiz and find out. Okay, let's see what we got here. Let's look at some music. Let's start out. I wanted to start out with a... Sing me a song with social significance. See if we can get that started. How about Pirate Jenny? With Nina Simone. Not happening. Okay, it's a labor and love show. Every week we come at you from 2781 21st Street with a labor point of view by, for, by, and about. Labor, the labor movement. And that doesn't mean some, some abstraction. That means every day when you go to work, how are you treated? Do you have a union? Do you need a union? Of course you need a union. You always need a union. You always need a voice talking for you. Listen now to some uh, Howard Zinn. Heroes and Martyrs. This month we celebrate not only the general strikes in Minneapolis and San Francisco, but people like Emma Goldman. Let's listen up. And I had never encountered in any of my classes anywhere as an undergraduate or a graduate the name of Emma Goldman. And that tells you something about historical education in this country. I know everybody complains about historical education, but people complain about it from different points of view. You know, the New York Times, I remember a few years ago, complained about the historical ignorance of students because they didn't know who was the president during the Mexican War, you know, and didn't know whether the Homestead Act came before the Civil Service Act, you know, and things like that. But you know, there's another point of view uh, in which uh, people are distressed because our historical education doesn't include people like Emma Goldman or Big Bill Haywood, or only tells about Helen Keller as a sort of a struggling, uh, a person who overcame handicaps and doesn't tell about her as a socialist and an anti-war, anti-militarist person. So um, I, in the 1960s, actually I must say, reading outside of my formal education, uh, because Sometimes you read outside of your classes, which is when you learn the most, and then 
and I had come across a book called Critics and Crusaders, uh, which some of you, you know, <laughs> three of you may know. And Critics and Crusaders, wonderful book. Uh, get it in the library, but it's, it has chapters on a lot of people that never appear in history books, but are some of the great people of American history. And there I had read a chapter on Emma Goldman, but then put it somewhere in the back of my mind. Then in the 1960s, I went to some conference in, in Pennsylvania on violence, and there encountered another historian, and, and uh, historians asked one another, just to let you in on how historians speak to one another, <laughs> just ask one another, and, and uh, what have you done? You know, what have you written? Which means, what have you written? And and I, I, I ran, this was Richard Drennan I ran into. And he said, oh, I've written this biography of Emma Goldman. So after the conference, I went to get the biography, because you always want to read books by people that you've met. So when somebody catches you reading it, you say, oh, I know this person. <laughs> uh, and, and so I, uh, uh, I read this really wonderful biography of Emma Goldman, Living My Life. No, I'm sorry, Rebel in Paradise. <laughs> Rebel in Paradise by, by uh, Richard Drennan, and, uh, which still remains as one of the you know, really fine biography and was a pioneering thing since most of the work on and by Emma Goldman had been out of print for some time. That led me to Living My Life. And for those of you who haven't read her autobiography, Living My Life, uh, you should immediately go and read it. As big as it is, it will read very fast because it's so interesting. And I, I even, undaunted by the size of the book, you know, two volumes, or you can sometimes get a very fat one-volume edition, but undaunted by the size of the book, I even, uh, several years, had some of my, assigned it to my students to read. Uh, and, uh, and it turned out to be uh, sort of one of the all-time hit books uh, for my students to read. I think there were three books of all the books I assigned my students to read over the decades. There were three books that were by far the most popular. One of them was Living My Life by Emma Goldman. The other was the autobiography of Malcolm X. And the third was uh, Dalton Trumbo's novel, Johnny Got His Gun. Uh, so um, you can see those aren't traditional text material. But uh, I, I already would have told you. never encountered in any of my classes anywhere as an undergraduate or a graduate the name of Emma Goldman. Now that tells you something about historical education in this country. I know everybody complains about historical education, but people complain about it from different points of view. 
You know, the New York Times, I remember a few years ago, complained of ignorance of students because they didn't know who was the president during the Mexican War, you know, and didn't know whether the Homestead Act came before the Civil Service Act, you know, and things like that. But, you know, there's another point of view uh, in which uh, people are distressed because our historical education doesn't include people like Emma Goldman or Big Bill Haywood or only tells about Helen Keller as a sort of a struggling uh, uh, person who overcame handicaps and doesn't tell about her as a socialist and an anti-war, anti-militarist person. So um, I, in the 1960s, actually I must say, reading outside of my formal education, uh, because Sometimes you read outside of your classes, which is when you learn the most. And then, and I had come across a book called Critics and Crusaders, uh, which some of you, you know, <laughs> three of you may know. And Critics and Crusaders, wonderful book. Uh, get it in a library, but it's, it has chapters on a lot of people that never appear in history books, but are some of the great people of American history. And there I had read a chapter on Emma Goldman, but then put it somewhere in the back of my mind. Then in the 1960s, I went to some conference in, in Pennsylvania on violence, and there encountered another historian. And, and uh, historians ask one another, just to let you in on how historians speak to one another, <laughs> ask one another, and, and uh, what have you done? You know, what have you written, which means what have you written. And, and I, I, I ran, this was Richard Drennan I ran into. And he said, oh, I've written this biography of Emma Goldman. So after the conference, I went to get the biography, because you always want to read books by people that you've met. So when somebody catches you reading it, you say, oh, I know this person. <laughs> uh, and, and so I... Uh, uh, I read this really wonderful biography of Emma Goldman, Living My Life. No, I'm sorry, Rebel in Paradise. <laughs> Rebel in Paradise by, by uh, Richard Drennan, and, uh, which still remains as one of the you know, really fine biography and was a pioneering thing since most of the work on and by Emma Goldman had been out of print for some time. That led me to Living My Life. And for those of you who haven't read her autobiography, Living My Life, uh, you should immediately go and read it. As big as it is, it will read very fast because it's so interesting. And I, I even, undaunted by the size of the book, you know, two volumes, or you can sometimes get a very fat one-volume edition, but undaunted by the size of the book, I even, uh, several years, had some of my, assigned it to my students to read. Uh, and, uh, and it turned out to be uh, sort of one of the all-time hit books uh, for my students to read. I think there were three books of all the books I assigned my students to read over the decades. There were three books that were by far the most popular. And one of them was Living My Life by Emma Goldman. The other was the autobiography of Malcolm X. And the third was uh, Dalton Trumbo's novel, Johnny Got His Gun. Uh, 
So um, you can see those aren't traditional text material. But uh, but they, they publish a book uh, called Nowhere at Home which uh, are the letters that that uh, Emma Goldman and Alexander Berkman wrote to one another in exile after you know they been deported from the United States. Um, among those letters that I read at the International Institute of Social History were the letters from Ben Reitman. And as I read them, I'd never come across that before. And as I read those letters, I thought that the International Institute of Social History would be ablaze in five minutes from those letters. Uh, well, you have to read those letters. Uh, I mean, you can't even call them love letters. I mean, the word, the phrase love letter is a pallid description of the letters that went between uh, Reitman and Goldman. You'll find some of them reproduced in Candace Falk's book. I've been talking to you about the, sort of the older literature, but in the last few years there's been a number of books. One of them, Candace Falk's books, Love, Anarchy, and Emma Goldman, and she reproduces what's called Love and Anarchy, I think. Yeah. Uh, and uh, she reproduces a, a, some of the Reitman-Goldman uh, letters. And uh, well, uh, what I think I'll, I'll do is, is sort of give you, uh, I, I, you know, I look at, I'm, trying, I'm looking at you and trying to figure out by looking at you, how much do you know about Emma <laughs> Goldman? Uh, and it's, it's uh, very hard to tell. So, uh, but I will give you a quick uh, rundown of, of her life. I don't see how I can, but I will give you a, a sort of quick summary of our life and then go into what I think, we'll talk about some of her ideas, which to me is, is most important. That is, it's, her life is, of course, fascinating and history is, is interesting, but I, I've never been a historian who sort of went into the past and, and got lost in it, as, which is a common thing. Uh, you know, you people, because it's so interesting. You go in, and you get lost. Uh, you don't want to come out. It's fascinating. Uh, but I believe that, you know, I always believe you should go in and as, as, as tempting as it is to stay, come out, you know, and bring some of that stuff with you and apply it to what's going on today and make some connection between what has happened in the past and what is, what is going on today. So th in that sense, her ideas, you know, it's so transcend the period in which he lived and connect, I think, very closely and very importantly with the kind of things that are, that are still going on today. But um, she... Uh,
Well, she was born in, in Lithuania, a little town in Lithuania, which, which is then part of Russia, Kobno, and she, you know, she uh, grew up in, you know, not in poor circumstances in a Jewish family and worked in uh, factories at, a, at an early age and uh, spent some time in Königsberg with, in, with an aunt and some time in St. Petersburg and, and had sort of exhilarating experiences of going to the opera for the first time and being excited by the, by the music. And, uh, and then uh, she was, I guess, uh, about 16 when the family emigrated uh, to the United States and moved to Rochester, New York. And there in Rochester, the, this uh, little immigrant Jewish family uh, lived the way <laughs> uh, immigrants without much money lived. And Emma worked in a factory. And, and she, at an early age, she married some guy <laughs> That's the way to put it. <laughs> it was some guy that she married, and, and which you know didn't work out very quickly. And 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 uh, and and when while she was there in Rochester, you know, she her, uh, she began to to make sort of emotional contact with the things that were swirling around in the United States. You have to understand that this is a time. You know, in the 1880s, the mid-1880s, this is the time when uh, class conflict in the United States is at a very intense point. Now, that period, rough, roughly between 1877 and 1914, uh, the period of, you know, which is described in the history books as the, the, you know, the period of the Industrial Revolution, the period when the Ameri United States became a great industrial power, and it's described as a period, uh, you know, a kind of, it, it's described exultantly as that, that time when, when the United States became you know, this, this powerful economic force. But it wasn't an exultant time for the people who worked in the, down in the depths of that Industrial Revolution, you know, and the people who worked in Carnegie steel mills or, you know, Rockefeller's oil fields or worked on the railroads and who died by the thousands in building a transcontinental railroad uh, and uh, the girls who went to work in the textile mills and died at the age of 25, uh, you know, to that, uh, and it was a period when uh, all of that was, was uh, uh, crystallizing in battle for the eight-hour day and battle for uh, lunch hours, battle for uh, against kids working at the age of eight and nine and ten. Uh, so, uh, I mean, here's a, a sort of a typical news item from, from that day. Uh, uh, sometimes uh, I find things uh, when I'm looking for them. But this is Trenton, New Jersey. 300 girl strikers of the American Cigar Company. Uh, they've, they stopped work uh, at, uh, and uh, went on strike because they wanted an hour for lunch. Uh, uh, they were working 14 hours a day, and they thought that instead of having a half hour for lunch, they should have an hour for lunch. So 3,000 girl strikers, as they put it, and, and they were girls, they were young, 
attacked the factory, the, the American cigar company with stones and sticks, smash the windows, demand a full hour. Uh, they're led by a 16-year-old girl uh, named Sa Sally Carr. Uh, another headline from that era, uh, millionaires living in fear and trembling. <laughs> J. J. Gould, some of you have heard of J. Gould. Uh, how can I describe him? Uh, well, take all the crooked Wall Street financiers of our time and wrap them up into one. That's Jay Gould, you know. Uh, it says, Jay Gould's habits altered due to the fact that there was an explosion at Russell Sage's office, an attempt on Russell Sage's life, so Jay Gould has altered his habits. Uh, and they had an interview with Cornelius Vanderbilt's bodyguard. The headline is, Cornelius Vanderbilt not afraid, but his friends are. Anyway, uh, that's that's the sort of those are the kind of things. I mean, there's a time of strikes, the great railroad strikes of 1877, and in 1886, one of the important events in American history takes place in Chicago, the Haymarket Affair. And uh, again, I don't know how many of you have heard of the Haymarket Affair. Oh, this is a very well educated audience. You've probably heard of everything I'm telling you. And uh, what's the point of all this, you see? But anyway, the Haymarket. Uh, well, she describes in her, auto, in her autobiography what happens when a visitor comes to uh, her family home, and she's having enough troubles with her father anyway. Uh, and this visitor and her father sort of uh, gloat over the, uh, the execution of these radicals, and Emma Goldman uh, picks up a pitcher of water and throws it into this visitor's face to show him how she feels. Uh, and uh, she believed in direct action. And that, that was her slogan. Uh, and uh, she left home soon after uh, and, and went to New York. In New York, she uh, took up with, uh, I always wondered, wondered about that phrase, took up with, uh, took up with uh, this little bunch of New York radicals, anarchists who would gather in Saks Cafe on Suffolk Street in downtown Manhattan. and. And they were all working people, you know, and they talked about, they gather there after work and talk about revolution and what to do and, and discuss Marx and Kropotkin and have arguments between the Marxists and the anarchists. And, uh, and, and there she met Alexander Berkman, who was a few years younger than, than her, uh, and, uh, but uh, an impassioned uh, anarchist. And uh, they became lovers and comrades and friends, and and uh, and and then they were joined by a few other friends, and they formed a little commune. And and uh, one of them, uh, including an artist, a uh, friend of theirs, with whom Emma also became lovers. And I 
tell you this just to give you a little hint of the kind of life that uh, she led, um, and a free life, uh, and this is what she believed in. And she and Berkman both proclaimed their belief in the freedom of people to love whoever they wanted, uh, and uh, unrestrained by you know, the laws of society or the traditions of monogamy and so on. Uh, Well, she describes in her in her autobiography what happens. And in 1892, when the uh, there was a strike at, at uh, Homestead, Pennsylvania, a steel plant belonging to Andrew Carnegie, and and the and the, and the, the Carnegie Corporation uh, and Henry Clay Frick uh, managing it, called out the Pinkerton Detective Agency to break the strike and the. And the Pinkertons uh, moved into the area, and, and there was a gun battle, and a number of the strikers were killed. And then uh, Emma Goldman and, and Alexander Berkman and a few of their friends getting together in Worcester in the ice cream parlor, which they now owned. Anarchists were always figuring out ways to make money. Not a lot of money just a little money, just survival money, just enough money to put out a magazine, enough money to maybe to escape the factory and so on. So this ice cream uh, store in Worcester was one of their uh, th things. And so they, they, they heard about what had happened in Homestead, Pennsylvania, and decided uh, we have to do something now, which, um, well, they do it in Europe. They assassinate SARS and chiefs of police and people who symbolize the uh, terror regimes. And now we're going to do this in the United States. We're going to kill Henry Clay Frick. Uh, and uh, you know, they were 20, 21 years old. Uh, and Berkman sets out to do this, and they get him a suit. Because uh, you can't, you know, when you kill somebody, you can't look bad. Uh, they get him a, a new suit, and they get him a gun, and he, he takes a train ticket uh, to uh, Pittsburgh, and he gets into Henry Clay Frick's office. And he was a very good anarchist, a very poor assassin, and, uh, and he fired away and missed, and, you know, and, uh, uh, oh, well, anyway. They, he was, a t he was then sort of knocked unconscious and then put on trial and, and sentenced to 22 years in prison for attempted murder. Uh, and uh, as usual, uh, when people, were, people usually jailed for attempted murder did not get 22 years in prison. Uh, but an anarchist who is, and this is still the case today, that is political, criminals that, who have committed the same acts that other people have committed who are not political people, the political criminals who get sentences twice or three times as big. Just that's the way the system works. And uh, so um, 
Berkman goes to prison, actually spends 14 years in prison. During this period, Emma Goldman becomes a, a speaker, a, a, you know, a leader, a strike leader. I, I didn't say anything about her relationship with Johann Most, who is a, uh, an anarchist leader from Germany, who was a very important figure in the anarchist movement, uh, and who's kind of uh, helped helped her and as she began to go out and, and speak and develop her abilities, but she, she was way beyond him in, in certain ways very, very soon. But she, uh, um, as I say, she, she, began, she began to speak, uh, began to, uh, very soon, this was 1893, uh, uh, the country's in the economic crisis in 1893. Uh, huge numbers of people unemployed. Emma addresses a great meeting in Union Square, uh, urges people who don't have food for their kids to go into the stores and take it. Another form of direct action. And the anarchists, I mean, it's part of the anarchist philosophy. If, if people are starving, you don't write a letter to your congressman asking that legislation be introduced so that someday people may have enough food. The, the idea of direct action is that if people don't have enough food, you take it. Uh, laws or no laws. Uh, you, you do what is necessary immediately and directly to give people what they deserve and what they need. Uh, you can't let children starve awaiting for the election of the next president. Uh, that this was, this was a, that philosophy. She was arrested for that, sentenced to jail, spent a, a year in jail on Blackwell's Island. While she was on Blackwell's Island, she, she encountered a, a, a prison nurse who uh, taught her something about nursing. After she came out, she went to Europe, studied to be a midwife. Uh, uh, and, and there in Europe also she met anarchist leaders, uh, met Kropotkin, the grand old man of anarchism, and, and met Malatesta, the Italian anarchist, and met Louise Michel, the uh, heroine of the 1871 Paris Commune. And uh, uh, I mean, her life was filled with, you know, encounters with uh, these, these remarkable people who affected her and were always affected by her. Uh, and she came back to the United States and, and continued to, to speak uh, out wherever she could, spoke on birth control. Uh, well, that was a dangerous thing to do. Uh, uh, and the police followed her everywhere, and she was arrested uh, again and again. And uh, what they detectives and plainclothes people uh, went everywhere she spoke. And, and uh, one time, however, they failed to arrest her after a speech on birth control because she had spoken to, uh, in the sort of uh, Lower East Side of New York, to a group of Jewish women. And, and the detective who, who attended the, the meeting uh, sent a report back to superiors saying that he didn't have enough evidence to arrest her because she spoke to them in Yiddish. Uh, and he wasn't that well equipped. There weren't a lot of Jewish detectives, as you might imagine. Uh, and so 
In, in 1901, she became really notorious because that was the year that President McKinley was uh, assassinated and uh, assassinated by a man named Leon Chokas, who was, a, I don't know how to describe him. He was a, a marginal person, a person uh, like a lot of the people who commit assassinations. Uh, and. Uh, and a person who had sometimes hung around anarchist meetings, and apparently in some of the interrogations of the police had uttered the name of Emma Goldman. Immediately a hunt on for Emma Goldman. She must be behind the assassination. Uh, she went into hiding, but finally they, they got her and arrested her. Uh, didn't keep her very long, because there's really no evidence against her. Sometimes it doesn't stop the police, but this time uh, there was really nothing, and so she, she was released. Uh, Cholkos was executed. Uh, his head was severed from his body so that they could examine his brain to see what it was in his brain that caused him to assassinate McKinley. Uh, Emma Goldman said they should examine the conditions of American society to see what it was. Uh, and uh, because the conditions of American society were enough to cause anybody to become an assassin, even though she didn't believe in assassination. She did not believe that Chokas had done the right thing. She didn't, although she had been involved in the attempt to assassinate Frick, she did not really believe anymore in that assassination was a, a, a tactic, a proper tactic for a revolutionary movement. However, and in this she got into some conflict with her fellow anarchists uh, who rushed to disavow Cholkas, you know, this crazy guy who did the, this violent thing, and we don't want to be associated with that. They already think all anarchists are assassins and bomb throwers. We don't want to have anything to do with this guy. And Emma Goldman said, no. Uh, she said, We'd, sure, I'm opposed to his act, it was wrong, it was a stupid thing to do, but I'm not, go I'm not going to try to separate myself from him. And to I I'm going to try to point out to people what it was that led him to do this. I'm going to emphasize that. Uh, and she was always that way. I'm, I mean, independent in her thinking. Uh, and always, always thinking in a very... Uh, uh, feeling way about uh, people who did desperate things and things that she very often deprecated, but that, that uh, the, the causes of which she thought should be understood. Um, well, uh, Berkman came out of prison in 1906 after those 14 years, uh, and, and uh, it was a very, very uh, emotional reunion with him and his anarchist friends. And he and, he and Emma Goldman uh, were no longer lovers after this, but they, they remained friends for the rest of their lives. One, in fact, one of the most remarkable examples 
of a, of a long and intense friendship, real friendship between a man and a woman, uh, even without a, a sexual uh, encounter. Uh, and, uh, and in fact, two years after Berkman came out, she and Berkman were involved in publishing the anarchist magazine, Mother Earth. And uh, two years after that, she met Ben Reitman. Uh, this, uh, how many of you know about her relationship with Ben Reitman? Ten people. Well, uh, finally, I have a chance. <laughs> uh, ben Reitman. She was doing a lecture in Chicago. She was going all around the country lecturing. And, and, and she was going to lecture in Chicago. And as usual, the police were not letting her uh, speak and were closing meeting halls. And she, you know, she was a notorious, outrageous woman speaking about birth control, speaking about free love, uh, saying that marriage uh, and love had nothing in common. Uh, but marriage was an insurance contract. Marriage was an economic arrangement. Love was something else, you see. And even in 1993, there are people who would be outraged by this, right? Family values and all of that, you see. But imagine, you know, in the early 1900s, uh, speaking sometimes in churches, about free love. Minister did not know what he was getting into. I don't know why. But, or maybe he did. It didn't last long as a minister probably after that. But anyway, uh, so she's speaking in Chicago, and, but they're closing the halls to her. And uh, the, uh, see if I can, the Chicago Tribune uh, reports that the, how the police, uh, when she starts to speak, drag her off the stage. This was a very common thing with her. Uh, the number of, she was constantly being dragged off the stage by the police. Uh, after being warned that she must not speak, she goes ahead and speaks, and they drag her off the stage and arrest her. And this reporter uh, records this conversation, uh, the police captain. Thought you'd come here and make trouble, eh, said the captain. <laughs> Behave yourself, Emma shot back. Talk like a man, even if you are a policeman. <laughs> Police chief, you can't talk here. I'll talk when I damn please. Anyway, uh, just a little, I mean, tells you something about her, the kind of person she is, right? Not exactly a shy and retiring person. Uh, okay, let's stop it there. Um, <clears throat> Listening to uh, Howard Zinn's take on Emma Goldman, a lecture given at Reed College, I believe. 
heroes and martyrs of the labor movement. So uh, let's come on with some music. It's 1929, right? Seems like the whole world is losing their job. There's nothing going on. And Bessie Smith, nobody loves you when you're down and out. My friends, I have one in it. 
Well, somebody said that's a strange tattoo you have on the side of your head. Said that's a blue mark left by the cold. A little more than I'd have been dead. I like the rumble, I like the dark blood, I like the blue of the sleigh. But it's gone down the new road looking for a job. Traveling and looking, I hate. Jennifer Garner is telling us about the advantages of a uh, capital card. Some people say a man is made out of mud. A poor man's made out of muscle and blood. Muscle and blood and skin and bones. A mind that's weak and a back that's strong. You load 16 tons. What do you get? Another day older and St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go I owe my soul to the company store I was born one morning when the sun didn't shine I picked up my shovel and I walked to the mine I loaded 16 tons, a number nine coal And the straw boss said, well, to bless my soul You load 16 tons what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. I was born one morning, it was drizzling rain. Fighting and trouble are my middle name. I was raised in the cane break by an old mama line. Can't no high tone woman make me walk the line. You load 16 tons. What do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go. 
I owe my soul to the company store. If you see me coming, better step aside. A lot of men didn't, a lot of men died. One fist of iron, the other of steel. If the right one don't get you, then the left one will. You load 16 tons, what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me, cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. Government had an idea and Parliament made it law. Seems like it's illegal to fight for the union anymore. And which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Set off to join the picket lines, but together we cannot fail. We got stopped by police at the county line. They said, Go on, boys, or you'll go into jail. And which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Well, it's hard to explain to a crying child why her daddy won't go back. Said the family suffer, but it hurts me more to hear a scab say, sod you, Jack. Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Follow my conscience and I'll do whatever I can And it'll take much more than a union law To knock the fight out of a working man And which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Okay, that was a mixed bag set there. <laughs> we had, uh, right there, we had Billy Bragg uh, singing Which Side Are You On, the Union Anthem. Before that, 
Tennessee Ernie Ford. 1955, talking about the life of a coal miner. Big hit, 16 tons. And then Hazel Dickens, talking about a coal tattoo, a woman singing about being a coal miner. And before that, we had the great Bessie Smith talking about nobody wants you when you're down and out. Okay, as we always say, never lose hope, never give up. All over the world and every time and every place, people are standing up for social justice, justice at work, a better lives. Listen to Radio Labor. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor report recorded on Friday, July 27th, 2018. I'm Mark Belanger. In the report this week, a breakthrough for domestic violence and workplace rights. Unions in Zimbabwe are organizing as the country goes to the polls. The Labor Start report about union events around the world and singing, You Can't Break Us, We Belong to the Union. This is Radio Labor. Unions in New Zealand and Australia have for years been lobbying for legislation to protect working women faced with domestic violence. And now they're breaking through. Seamarie Ainsborough reports. The New Zealand Parliament has passed the world's first domestic violence and workplace legislation. The legislation will allow victims of domestic violence 10 days paid leave from work to get away from their partners, find new homes, and protect themselves. New Zealand has one of the highest rates of domestic violence in the developed world. Police in the country respond to family violence incidents every four minutes. The new legislation will come into effect in April 2019. It stipulates that any person experiencing domestic violence will be entitled to 10 days paid leave from work, in addition to standard holiday and sick leave entitlements. They will also be entitled to flexible work conditions designed to ensure their safety, such as changing their work location and email addresses. Victims of domestic violence do not have to provide proof of their situation. The New Zealand Council of Trade Unions welcomed the new legislation. Council Secretary Sam Huggard told the media domestic violence is a workplace issue because it impacts heavily on people's working lives. He said the country's unions are eager to help workplaces and workers put the new law into practice as soon as possible. Meanwhile, the Australian government has also announced action on domestic violence in the workplace. It says it will introduce legislation entitling workers to five days unpaid leave to deal with a family violence situation. The Australian Council of Unions, the ACTU, has criticized the government-proposed legislation because it does not provide for paid leave. A study by the ACTU found that the full cost of leaving an abusive relationship, including moving and lawyer fees, is 18000 Australian dollars. Unions in Australia have been fighting for domestic violence paid leave for many years. Natalie Lang is a branch secretary of the Australian Services Union. She and others spoke in an ASU video about the need for paid leave in domestic violence situations. The solution has to be shared by everybody, and union members are putting their hand up and saying, we will be part of the solution. 
And the nature of domestic violence is that it's a very difficult thing for women to disclose and they're in workplaces where there's no understanding that it's a safe place to disclose because there isn't domestic violence leave. Victims of domestic violence that are going through the court system often have to attend court on multiple occasions and take time off work to do that. We need to be able to have leave for people to be able to go to the doctor. We need to have leave for them to go to the school and talk about the safe arrangements for the children. The legal system is not a fast one. For victims of domestic violence, this can specifically be used against them as a means of undermining their employment. I would say that the offenders quite often rely on this fact. We need the opportunity to perhaps say to the victim, look, you've got this leave with your employer, don't be worried about losing your job. Most of our clients have children, and um, if they have a job, it's so important for them to be able to keep that job rather than have to rely on a Centrelink of welfare benefits. It's not a big ask. It's something that should occur and it needs to be done today and we just can't wait. If it's in the National Employment Standards, how can it be ignored anymore? Paid leave is just one less stress for them and I, I really think it should be something that the employer recognises and values their worker, keeping them at work and putting in place the things that they need to retain their job. We won't wait. We won't wait. We won't wait. We won't wait. We won't wait because women can't wait. Zimbabwe, a country of 16 million in southern Africa, is headed to national elections on July 30th. This will be the first election since the country won independence from Britain in 1980 that will not have Robert Mugabe on the ballot. Last year, Zimbabwe's military forced Mr. Mugabe to resign as president. I talked to Vimbai Zinyama about the situation in Zimbabwe. Ms. Zinyama is the external relations officer for the Zimbabwe Congress of Trade Unions, the ZCTU. I asked her if she is optimistic or pessimistic about her country's future. There are two answers to that question. I'm optimistic in that if there is enough pressure that uh, is maintained on principled grounds, then Things may turn out differently during and after elections. Our only fear is that if the international community and all the other friends of uh, Zimbabweans start to think that, oh, there's a change and things have got better, then everybody loses track and focus on what are the real issues. And then there's an element of trying to prioritize that if we just managed to achieve some kind of social justice, you know, which is possibly likened to either another country, then people will think that things are okay. Then that will put me in the pessimistic approach in that the stronger global friends may just be satisfied with somewhat achievement of semblance of a peaceful environment which is not so peaceful or which is not developmental. So there are two things in my view that if the world keeps up the need to monitor the need for justice, the need for social and economic development to take place and the need to ensure that human rights are respected in the process. Has the removal of Robert Mugabe improved the situation for labor unions in Zimbabwe? No, 
I do not think that would be um, anything anyone can say at the moment because the situation in Zimbabwe is that we are slowly turning into a military state. And that in itself does not correlate very well with the aspirations of democracy and good governance, which the trade unions are always up for. We have written several letters to the incumbent, the current president of Zimbabwe, who has taken over from Mugabe, and we have not got any responses as yet. What we perceive possibly is that the situation is going to get worse with the militarization efforts. A lot of the departments have presence of the army, which may either be visible or invisible. It will mean that the space for negotiation and uh, proper policy dialogue or social dialogue will be closed. So I do not think perceive a time when things are going to be better unless there is intervention. How can labor organizations around the world help the ZCTU and its members? At this point in time, you need to be propped up to be able to interface with the new demands of the new situation. One, having to deal with quasi-military institution that is now presenting itself in the country, and also to be capacitated to maintain the analysis of the environment and speak out the issues and to ensure that as we enter into negotiations for development, we are able to take our country beyond. Whilst we are still fighting for democracy, we need to also keep an economy that can catch up with the new work environment and the new jobs and new situations that are emerging. Here with his report about union events around the world is Labor Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. Here's a small sample of the average of 195 news stories added to our site each day last week. Our top stories section included links to coverage of the international organizing that was behind last week's coordinated strikes against Amazon all across Europe, a court victory for South African unions in their battle with labor brokers, and the call for solidarity with Turkish workers in their fight with the giant Cargill Corporation. We have news of strikes and lockouts in dozens of countries. Here are just a few highlights. Australian train track maintenance workers took a day off work when wage talks broke down. Irish pilots struck Ryanair in a third one-day action as their wage dispute continued. Later in the week, Spanish flight attendants took their turn and grounded flights based in that country for two days, and they in turn were joined later by ground staff, including managers in Belgium, Portugal, and Italy. After only a few days on strike, Indian solid waste collection workers forced the cancellation of the creation of 115 temporary positions and instead forced their employer to create 300 permanent jobs. Factory workers joined area residents and struck for a day so that they could join a protest over the creation of a Chinese-controlled special economic zone in Vietnam. Mine safety workers in Australia were locked out the day before the 30th anniversary of one of that country's worst mine disasters. 
migrant workers employed as contract cleaners in the UK were picketing as they tried to win union recognition in a struggle over a wide range of workplace issues. Power generation workers across Venezuela stopped work as they struggled to keep pace with runaway inflation. Government workers in New Zealand struck but didn't picket. Instead, they worked on renovating a shelter for victims of domestic violence. As the oil platform workers' strike ended in Norway, British North Sea oil workers were preparing for their one-day walkout last week. Or perhaps it was a swim-out. Our top working women's stories included coverage of the union victory in the fight for domestic violence leave legislation in New Zealand, and more progress towards the legalization of sex work in South Africa. The Health and Safety Newswire, we run in cooperation with Hazards Magazine, carried stories to hundreds of union websites around the world about the dangers faced by workers in countries like Japan and the UK as heat waves cover large parts of the world, and the stepped-up campaign for mine safety in South Africa. Currently, Leverstart is running seven online actions. Take just a few seconds out of your day and join thousands of trade unionists around the world in helping workers make their lives better, or even help save those lives. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. Now here is the Australian folk singer Tim O'Brien with You Can't Break Us, We Belong to the Union. You can bruise my pride and bust my face Scatter my rights all over the place And take the bread from off my plate But you can't break me Lock me out, chain the gates Put black shirts in with dogs and mace I'll hold the line, won't step away Cause you can't break me I belong, you belong, we belong to when I'm on the floor, we'll win again We've won before, the streets will ring with a mighty roar Cause you can't break me Stocks rise up on workers' backs Profits soar while you hand out the sack Boardroom bullies bloated and fat But you can't break me Australia's sold to mates offshore Backroom deals and shonky law This day has come, we say no more You can't break me I belong, you belong, we belong to the Union I belong, you belong, we belong to the Union I'll never lay down and die I'm in the union, mate, got a right to belong We'll be back, million strong Women and men united as one Cause you can't break me There's a warning here to the men in grey The pipers come, it's time to pay We're taking back what you stole away Cause you can't break me
And that's it. International labor news you can use. You can find more labor news on our website at www.radiolabor.net. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. Radio Labor there. International Labor Solidarity. You look around here, Janice just uh, passed. People begin to lose hope, but we're not alone. We don't exist in a vacuum. We exist as part of a larger movement for labor and social justice all over the world. Go on the Radio Labor website and uh, write some letters to support your brothers and sisters all over the world. We're talking about great strikes now. Um, 1934, for some reason, two great general strikes happened around this time, July 1934. So first, let's listen to this one about the Minneapolis general strike. Okay. Minneapolis truckers make history. at a meeting where they are voting on whether to accept their union contract. A union is a group of workers who come together to have a voice at work. A union contract is a written agreement negotiated by union members with their employer. Among other things, the contract includes how much the workers will be paid, if they will receive employer-paid health insurance, how many vacation and sick days they have, and what the employer will do to protect them from getting hurt on the job. Janitors and other workers today are able to belong to a union and to negotiate with their employers because people before them fought to establish that right. In 1934, thousands of truck drivers in Minneapolis staged a series of strikes that helped to establish the right to form a union. A strike happens when workers decide to stop working to protest conditions they consider unfair. The truck drivers in Minneapolis belonged to the Teamsters Union and were calling attention to their low pay and poor treatment on the job. Most importantly, they were raising awareness about the need for unions. The impact of it was that the employers were not going to be the masters of the workplace. And that was really what it was all about. In 1929, just a few years before the Teamsters strike, Minneapolis is a sharply divided city. On one side are the employers with their fine homes overlooking the western lakes. On the other, an almost totally non-unionized workforce whose wages are among the lowest in the nation. To prevent unionization, the employers bank on their membership in the Citizens Alliance, an organization created to keep the workers from coming together. The Citizens Alliance includes the executives of the city's largest companies. Since the end of World War I, the Citizens Alliance has enjoyed almost total power. 
While workers in many parts of the country saw their pay go up by as much as 11% during the 1920s, the power of the Citizens Alliance limited pay raises for Minneapolis workers to 2% or less. Buddy, can you spare In 1930, the U.S. economy drops dead in its tracks, shakes with sudden convulsions, and rattles slowly backwards. Banks close their doors, and businesses collapse. The Great Depression has hit. A vast army of hollow-faced people without work or hope of income roam the streets, sleep on benches, and beg for bread. In 1933, Congress passes an economic planning measure the National Recovery Act. Though limited in scope, it encourages public confidence. At least someone is doing something. Business conditions improve, unemployment declines modestly, but wages fail to keep pace with rising prices, and in Minneapolis, workers have scarcely benefited. And there were a lot of men uh, trying to raise families on $15 a week, and some even less. Uh, conditions were terrible. The workers in the Minneapolis coal yards joined together with truck drivers to form Local 574 of the Teamsters Union. In those days, many people heated their homes with coal-burning stoves. On two very cold days in February 1934, workers shut down almost every coal yard in the city. The employers give in to their demands, and the workers begin to formulate even more ambitious plans. As the Depression deepens, more and more workers join unions, but 30,000 Minneapolis don't have jobs. They can't get unemployment benefits or other aid because this was before those government programs were created. Their attempts to organize have been met by police clubs. Hungry for work, they could be hired to replace workers who are on strike. The leaders of Local 574 know this and reach out to these workers, inviting them to form their own section of the union. Encouraged by the solidarity exhibited by the truckers, the unemployed workers sign up to serve as pickets instead of strike breakers. The Teamsters in Minneapolis are inspired by the courage of workers in other cities who are also standing up for fairness and the right to join unions. In Toledo, Ohio, thousands of workers at an auto parts factory, half of them women, go out on strike with the full support of unemployed people in their community. In San Francisco, people fill the streets and shipping is stopped at every port on the West Coast when longshoremen go on strike to have a voice in the workplace. By mid-May, with their plans carefully mapped out, the now 6,000 members of Local 574 in Minneapolis vote to shut down the city. They demand better wages and union recognition. They also tell the employers that the union must include not only drivers, but all of the men and women working at the warehouses. The union uses a brilliant but risky tactic called the cruising picket line. Carloads of strikers cruise the downtown area looking for trucks that might be trying to move cargo in violation of the strike. When they spot one, the picketers stand in front of the truck with their signs. The tactic works well, and for several days, the truck traffic is nearly halted. This kind of operation requires a lot of support. Women work 12-hour shifts to feed thousands of strikers. 
Sympathetic small business people provide food for the strike kitchen. Some of the milk companies send in milk and gave us tickets so they pickets could take milk home for their children. Secretaries who support the strike listen in on their employers and give the union information regarding anti-strike plans. The workers are winning, but the employers have not given up. On May 21, 1934, strikers, police, and special deputies hired by the Citizens Alliance confront each other in hand-to-hand -hand combat in the city's central market district. The conflict spills over into the next day when a local radio station broadcasts live from the site. And the cops showed us how to, how to swing clubs, and then the day before, and we learned fast who beat them back. And so they shut the gates finally. Police and Citizens Alliance deputies flee the clubs of the pickets who soon control the streets. Injured police, deputies, and strikers lie bleeding on the cobblestones. Two Citizens Alliance deputies die from the blows they receive, one of them a prominent Minneapolis businessman. Desperate to put an end to the violence, Governor Floyd B. Olson urges the union and the Citizens Alliance to meet. After three days, an agreement is reached. The strikers will be reinstated to their jobs, and the employers agree to grant union recognition to a broad range of workers in the trucking industry. But the battle for Minneapolis, which now appears settled, has really only just begun. Soon, it becomes clear that the employers are not sticking to their side of the deal. The workers vote to strike again in mid-July. The union's newspaper, The Organizer, becomes the first daily paper ever published by a striking union. A strike committee of 100 is elected to represent the many different kinds of workers in the industry. They meet every morning and lay out their plans for the day. Many other unions come out in support of the strike. A special farmer's market is set up so that small farmers can sell their food directly to the public, thus avoiding hardship from the strike. We were fortunate to be in a state where there was an active farm holiday association. The farmers helped us tremendously. And they used to bring in, they used to bring in food and supplies and milk in every way. And farmers that understand what it's all about realize that they're workers too, except they ain't got no eight to five day. They start in the morning and they quit at night, and it's seven days a week. But the farmers, the farmers around the adjacent area to the Twin Cities were tremendous in their support and help in the 34 strike. Pickets fan out from new headquarters in the heart of downtown. They keep the streets nearly free of truck movement. The mayor of Minneapolis urges Governor Olson to mobilize the National Guard in case of new outbreaks of violence. The Minneapolis police chief orders his forces to begin moving goods. On July 20th, Henry Ness is on picket duty for the union. He is riding on the back of a pickup with a dozen other strikers when a truck carrying merchandise pulls out from a warehouse near the market. The pickup in which Ness is riding moves quickly to intercept the truck. Standing by, a line of police are ready with their shotguns. 
we heard the shooting. It was in the middle of the block. The truck would, would have tried to intercept the truck, I'm sure. That was the intent. But nobody got out of the truck. And you, the pictures will show police started open fire on them. Harry and I and Ben Kosky, and I remember Ben because we were all three injured, come out of that alley and we ran into a policeman who was down on one knee and he had a sub-Thompson machine riot gun. And just as we come around the corner, he fired. And he knocked Harry DeBoer's leg. We didn't know how bad, but Harry fell down. Ben Kosky's hand was right next to Harry's leg and he pretty near severed it. And I got the balance of the charge, the lacerations in the uh, uh, stomach area, and uh, I got some cracked ribs out of it. I thought I was killed because I was bleeding, but it was just surface wounds, it turned out to be. We got Harry, got him up to the strike headquarters, we got Kosky there, and everyone went to different hospitals. and everyone went to different hospitals. It was bedlam when we got there. It was, a, it was turmoil. These boys were shot in the back. They were moaning and groaning. The doctor uh, was trying to get to all of them. The nurses were working. And we were flying around getting supplies for them, for those that were attending the sick. It was pretty bad that day, very bad. 67 people are wounded by the bullets of the police. Two of them, John Ballore and Henry Ness, die later from their wounds. Ness is 40 years old and the father of four children. A few days later, tens of thousands of strikers and sympathetic citizens lined the streets for the funeral of Henry Ness. It was a real sad day for the truckers and everybody. But uh, it was really a large funeral, the largest one I ever saw in my life. Then came a terrible period of uh, uh, not frustration, but anger among the ranks. And the leaders had a problem because they were uh, real concerned that several of the guys would want to uh, get even with that. That was cold-blooded murder, what they'd done. The events of July 20th, Bloody Friday, galvanized public opinion to the side of the strikers. Protest rallies even attracted small business owners. Fearing further violence, Governor Olson orders the National Guard into Minneapolis. For several days, the guardsmen control the city. Whatever Olson's motives, martial law works to weaken the strike. The guardsmen are not effective at keeping the streets closed to traffic. Ten days later, 70% of normal truck traffic is moving. The union holds a street meeting challenging martial law. In response, Olson orders the guard to Union headquarters. More than 70 strikers are arrested. 
feeling betrayed by a governor they thought sympathetic to their cause, hundreds of strikers roam the streets, turning over trucks and confronting guardsmen. The union newspaper calls for a general strike. A group of strike leaders meet with Governor Olson, demanding the release of their comrades who are still under arrest. Olson complies and orders the guard to tighten up on truck traffic and to raid the Citizens Alliance headquarters. He hopes that the raid will convince the employers to settle on an agreement already supported by the union. The employers refuse. The National Guard then steps up activities against the strikers. Guardsmen arrest the cruising pickets and send them to a stockade set up at the state fairgrounds. The strike enters its fourth week, having become a battle of wills. By now, the trucking firms are hurting. Many are anxious to agree to a settlement. But pressure from the Citizens Alliance keeps the major companies from signing an agreement. That summer, President Franklin Roosevelt visits Rochester, Minnesota. Governor Olson hurries to meet with him. They spend hours discussing the crisis in Minneapolis. The banks in Minneapolis need money from the federal government to stay in business during the Depression. And President Roosevelt uses that leverage to put pressure on the employers. But in the end, it is the persistence, solidarity, and strength of the strikers which proves too strong for the Citizens Alliance to resist. Eventually, the employers offer a compromise plan but the strikers smell victory and reject it. On August 19, 1934, the Citizens Alliance agrees to nearly all the union's demands. The workers have won. The success of the truck strike leads to the rapid unionization of other Minneapolis industries and sparks labor organizing from Rhode Island to Washington State. Finally, in 1935, Congress takes notice and passes the National Labor Relations Act, which guarantees workers the right to bargain collectively through unions. The struggle in Minneapolis is a turning point for working people in the United States and marks the start of a new era of fairness and prosperity in American workplaces. Many decades later, on July 20, 1980, the Minneapolis truck strike is memorialized for the first time at a city park. More than a hundred living veterans of those tumultuous days are in attendance. They are awarded medallions commemorating their participation in the strike. Today, Minnesotans no longer heat their homes with coal, but like the workers of 1934, many still struggle to make ends meet. On this street, where there once were many warehouses, there are only a few monuments to remind passers-by that what happened here transformed the city and played a decisive role in the history of organized labor in the United States. One reminder is a collection of strike photos displayed at a light rail station in downtown Minneapolis. But for many who passed the light rail station, the full history of what happened here remains unknown. That on this street, over 50 unarmed men were shot by police, and two of them died. The bloodstains are gone from the pavement now, and in the minds of most people, it is just another street. But labor's struggle to maintain a decent quality of life, dignity, and social justice remains. There's more in life than just going out and getting yourself a 50 cent an hour job or a $50 a week job, depending on the 
you know, the uh, wages of the times. I said, there's got to be something more to this. We have to make the workers realize that through the organized strength of unions, they can achieve a better way of life. Taking until millions that they never were to earn. But without a brain and muscle, not a single will could turn. Not a force on earth is weaker than the feeble strength of one. Solidarity forever. The union makes us strong. Okay, that was a history of the 1934 general strike in Minneapolis, one that was witnessed firsthand by uh, my mother and her family. My mother even uh, worked on the side of the union, um, running a mimeograph machine and passing out... Uh, passing out uh, circulars to the workers. We started out with the Great Strike of 1877. We touched a little bit last week on the uh, Great Strike in Seattle, Washington, 1934. Today, the Minneapolis General Strike. Next week, our own homegrown here, San Francisco General Strike of 1934. Now, here's a song you've heard before on this program. This is a live version of it by Nina Simone. Because people before them fought to establish in 1934, thousands. Pardon me. Okay. But you'll never guess to who you're talking. No. You could never guess to who you're talking. Then one night, there's a scream in the night, and you wonder, who could that have been? And you see me kind of grinning while I'm scrubbing. And you say, what she got to grin? I'll tell you, there's a she. The black freighter with a skull on its masthead will be coming in. You gentlemen can say, hey gal, finish them floors, get upstairs. What's wrong with you? Earn your keep here. You toss me your tips and look out to the ships, but I'm counting your heads as I'm making the beds, cause there's nobody gonna sleep here tonight. Nobody's gonna sleep here, honey. Nobody. Nobody. Then one night, there's a scream in the night and you say, who's that kicking up a row? And you 
see me kind of staring out the window and you say what's she got to stare at now I'll tell you there's a ship the black freighter turns around in the harbor shooting guns from her bow now you gentlemen can wipe off that smile off your face because every building in town is a flat one this whole freaking place will be down to the ground only this cheap hotel standing up safe and sound and you yell why do they spare that one yes that's what you say why do they spare that one to do you wonder who is that person that lives up there and you see me stepping out in the morning looking nice with a ribbon in my hair <laughs> and the ship the blood Runs a flag up its masthead and a cheer rings the air. By noontime, the dock is a swarming with men coming out from the ghostly freighter.
and on it is me. Okay, Nina Simone, as, as I say, we <clears throat> play that song a lot here. Uh, the Black Freighter Pirate Jenny by Brecht and Vile. And uh, just about time for us to get going here. Um, this is the Labor and Love Show, and you're listening to Mutiny Radio. Come on down to Mutiny Radio and make a difference. Get a voice. 20th Street Block Party. It's summertime and we're ready to groove in the mission for the 6th Annual Noise Pop Block Party. It's free. Saturday, August 18th from noon to 6 p.m. with bands. Empress of, Jeff Rosenstock, the Marias, the She's, Small Crush, the Total Bettys, and more. Come to Mutiny Radio for special programming all afternoon, including live comics, karaoke on the radio for donations, and interviews with main stage bands. Bring your family, friends, and neighbors, dogs, on August 18th to benefit the Mission Language and Vocational School and celebrate the peak of sunshine. For more, check out the Noise Pop Block Party website at www.20thstreetblockparty.com. Okay. Do it. Come on down. Mutiny Radio needs you. We've got lots of open slots here where you could be broadcasting to a worldwide internet audience as well as live here at our station we've got video we've got comedy we've got radio we've got art installations it's all here at mutiny radio but we still need you so come on down mutinyradio.fm 2781 21st street in the heart of the Mission District. And think of us when you're thinking of donating some money. Okay, let's see. Uh, let's go out with one of our favorites again. This is the Labor and Love Radio Show where we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. And if you don't have a seat at the table, the, the negotiating table where you work, you're probably on the menu. 
Finally, never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. This is Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road, archived at iTunes or mutinyradio.fm backslash podcasts. Okay. It don't make sense if you can't make peace. Tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of mutinyradio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice. LGBTQ friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. Mutinyradio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit face McRat. <laughs> Hey, everybody. Listen to the Weekly Review with Roman every Friday from noon to 2 p.m. This is an unapologetically anti-capitalist program. We interview community organizers, activists, and artists. We talk about ways you can take action right now. So listen in to the Weekly Review every Friday from noon to 2 p.m.
Little SF brings you visual and auditory mind control. For the best graphic design, physical merchandise, and live music promotion, go to www.subliminalsf.com and check out their hilarious t-shirts and super cool bands at clubs and bars all over the Bay Area. Subliminal SF creates amazing flyers, posters, and design for every need. So go now to www.subliminalsf.com and experience what this wonderful local business has to offer. Good evening there, my friends here at MutinyRadio.fm. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that any time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and Beyond's underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's Deep in the Mission District where you can laugh off your tushy for a mere five dollars every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because five dollars, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere five dollars is indubitious. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere, like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak ceiling. So all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse, or you can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe? It's a cash cock, honey. (laughs) Well, hello, boys and girls. You know what a password is. That's a secret word that soldiers would use to get past the sentry and up to the front. Well, here's a password that gets you up to the front in all the right places. It's cannabis energy. It seems the faster you go, the more cannabis energy you need. So if you want to win, you have to have lots of cannabis energy. And the swellest way I know to get it is just by using Green Army Skincare. Boy, they're just crammed full of cannabis energy. There are more cannabis energy units in one lip balm tube than you use circling the base ten times or when you ride your bike four miles across the city. And it's fast acting. Why, no sooner that you apply some balm to your mouth or pain areas, you practically feel the new strength in your muscles. And what's more, Green Army Skincare is a good, wholesome product. They're made with body-nourishing cannabis and other natural ingredients. So go out there today and pick up some Green Army Skincare products from your local cannabis procurement center. Join thegreenarmy.com. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, we'd like to invite you down to Bender's Bar and Grill in the heart of the Mission District in San Francisco at 806 South Van Ness. Uh, we've got great food by our kitchen counter offer, burgers, tater tots, tachos, corn dogs, all sorts of good stuff like that. They're open from opening until 11 p.m. most days of the week, except Saturday. 
uh, every Saturday night we've got live rock and roll some of the best local bands in San Francisco and touring acts as well come on down 10 p.m. rock and roll only night of the week we have a $5 cover charge always five bucks for live rock and roll we're open from 4 p.m. until 2 a.m. Monday through Thursday Friday Saturday Sunday 2 to 2 Come on down, have some drinks with us. We've got Whiskey Wednesday, Tequila Tuesday, and we've always got the Steve McQueen special. Shot of bullet bourbon and a can of California lager for eight bucks. Come down and enjoy our patio. It's open uh, in the afternoon, not really in the evening, but a lot of good folks hanging out back there. Come on down, give us a shot. Drop by the bar, make some friends. Thanks folks, Bender's Bar and Grill in the heart of the Mission District, San Francisco, California. With a happy hour every Monday through Friday until 7 p.m. Don't miss it. Go to Bender's Bar. Big supporter of the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival 2018. Oh, yeah. It goes down. Come smoke with your boy. Grinder. Spark is San Francisco's premier cannabis dispensary with a focus on serving and educating patients for seven years. Spark is dedicated to creating the best in-store experience with its extensive menu, friendly staff, and one of the few cannabis vape lounges in San Francisco. Spark welcomes you to visit its two great locations as a medical patient or for recreational adult use in 2018. Spark is located at 1256 Mission Street between 8th and 9th and at 473 Haight Street at Fillmore. Both locations are open until 10 p.m. every night. Spark staff looks forward to serving you. Coming at these bitches and all these snitches hitting switches going back to riches. Rainbow Grocery, a worker-owned and operated food cooperative located at 1745 Folsom Street in the Mission District of San Francisco. Let's hear what locals have to say about Rainbow Grocery. Their bulk section is dope AF. I love their, their variety of cheese and home decor items uh, and this of unique items that you can't find anywhere else. Their cheese section is insane. For the lad, Black Blast is a show you're listening to on Mutiny Radio. FM. Me walking alone, me bring juggle rum. Come. It's long the night, it's quiet the dark. 